What's the story you always tell when you're with a group of people? Let me ask the children. Children, what stories do your parents always tell? Over and over and over again. This week I came home and I asked Jessica, I said, what two stories, or I didn't say two stories, she gave me two stories. I said, what stories does my family tell all the time? And without thinking about it, she says, there's two. Both involve your mother. Bless her heart. I've, I might have said these two stories, but they're short and sweet. The first story was around Thanksgiving. My family was getting ready to travel for Thanksgiving, but we had my two aunts over for Thanksgiving dinner or supper or lunch. I forget what it was, but my mom had forgotten something for the meal, and she left. And as she, she came back into the driveway, my dad stood up and said, I wonder if she remembered the luggage carrier on top of the car. So we all stood up immediately and started waving at her, trying to stop her from pulling into the garage with the luggage carrier on the car. In return, she waved at us and pulled into the garage with the luggage carrier on the top. The second story is very similar in that every other Christmas we would travel to Colorado. I have an aunt and an uncle. My mom's sister lives in Colorado. And I have a younger sister. She's seven years younger than me. And I have two cousins that are just younger than her. And every time we would go to Colorado, my mom would take clothes that my sister had outgrown and take them to my cousins. So right before we left, she got all the clothes and they put them, she put them in a trash bag so we could take to Colorado. Well, on this trip to Colorado, my brother and I started complaining about a weird smell. And, you know, you have two boys in the back seat. Who knows what the smell is? But we kept complaining about this smell, it smelled, it smelled. And then when we stopped at a gas station in Kansas, we realized what the smell was. My mom hadn't brought a trash bag full of clothes. My mom had brought our trash across state lines. These are the two stories, without a doubt, that when my family's together, we tell these stories. It doesn't matter how long it's been, my brother and I relive these stories and we die in laughter every time. Because there are stories. It's what makes us a family. These type of stories that you tell over and over again talk about where you've been or who you are and what you've experienced together. We might even say these stories give windows into our souls. This morning we are brought into a time of storytelling 15, 16 BC, 516 BC, where families are gathered around a table telling each other great family stories. Except this family story is a very particular one. It's the story of how God redeemed his people. This is the Passover story. We read it from Exodus 12 when the Passover was established. The tenth miracle that God performed on Egypt so that Pharaoh would let Israel go. The night when God judged the Egyptians and showed great grace to his people. And here we have both meals, the Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread that are 
almost always join together in Scripture because both of them call the people to be reminded of the great redemptive story of God and His people out of Egypt. They're gathered around the dinner table. And as we read, Moses knew children would ask, tell us the story again. And if you remember, last time I preached, I reminded us that in 2020, we stopped meeting as a congregation for two months. That was a long two months. And then over the course of a year, we had regulations. For the safety of everyone in the congregation, we split into two services. And then just a few months ago in June, or yeah, a few months ago in June, we came back together for the first time with no restrictions. We celebrated and worshipped like we had before. And then the following week, we came to the Lord's Supper for the first time like we had before. But if you remember when the people came out of Babylon, back to the promised land, they came back together. But it was the first time in almost a hundred years. I mean, it was hard for us for one year with restrictions. It had been 92 years since they had celebrated, since they had rehearsed, since they told the story of God's great redemption of them from Egypt. Because they could not celebrate the Passover without the temple. It was the centerpiece of their religion. It was the centerpiece of who they were as God's people, because that is where God dwelt among his people. And without the temple, there was no Passover. They were, for the first time, that is probably that generation's first time to hear these stories around this table. And the story was they needed saving. And God rescued them. The story is about how God found them when they were in slavery. And he acted upon his promises that he had given Abraham. This is the story that their fathers and mothers used to tell with great joy. And now they were gathering for the first time in almost a hundred years to remind them of who they were what they had experienced together and what God was doing in their lives. All of these different aspects, all of the different details of the story would cause them to remind themselves of what God did with that blood of the Lamb. It was the blood of the Lamb that was on the doorposts. It was because a sacrifice had been been made. The lamb was killed so that they were spared. The blood's lamb, the, the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost so that they didn't shed their own blood. This was the story of the Passover, the great exchange. This is the story they were retelling, rehearsing, reminding, and maybe for the first time, 
revealing God's great and supernatural redemption of his people. This is who they were. They were God's people. And as we look at Ezra 6, I want us to see three things from this passage. That God uses unexpected people in the story of his redemption. That God expands the story in the story of his redemption. And that God offers great joy to those who participate in his story of redemption. God uses unexpected people in the story. Many of you know that right after high school, I went, I went and lived in Europe. Maybe you didn't know. After high school, I went and lived in Europe for a year. I took a gap year. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I kind of knew, but I didn't really know. I really wanted to play basketball in college. But my senior year, I got hurt, and I only played in about four or five games my whole senior year. And so throughout my senior year, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And back when we, I was in junior high, me and my good friend Joel Addington said, you know, when we graduate college, let's move to Europe and go to this small Bible school called Cape and Ray Hall in Confuth, England. Well, I did and Joel didn't. But when I, when I got to Confuth, Confuth was a very beautiful place in the Lake District in England. But what I realized when I got there is that some students also went to this strange school, which was a sister school in Austria, that spoke English. And it was a, you could do a semester in, I mean, don't take me wrong. I know Tennessee is God's country, but Austria is really God's country. It is the most beautiful place I have ever lived. Schladming, Austria. Well, when I was at the school, they broke us into groups, and these different groups, we were going to go into this, these different schools and preach the gospel. Praise the Lord, right? Back then, we could go into schools and openly preach the gospel. Well, they broke us into these groups, about four or five people, and there was one person in the group that I remember, and his name was Peter. Peter was from Chile. He was a missionary from Chile that had been called to be a missionary in Germany. And he came to this school to work on both his German and to be at a Bible school for a year. And as we met in this group, Peter just stared at me. No talking. He just cold stared at me. When someone stares at you for about 15 minutes, you start to get a little uncomfortable. After the meeting, Peter said, Tyler, will you please wait here? I want, I want to say something to you. This 18-year-old kid is like, sure, why not? So I stayed. Peter looked at me. He sat me down. He says, in you, all I see is pride. And that's not what Jesus looks like. Peter changed my life forever. He looked at me and said, all I see is pride. And that's not what Jesus looks like. I've never been able to find Peter again through Facebook or searching, calling different people. I've never, I never, I don't know where Peter is. God used an unexpected person in my life who I will probably never see again to change everything about me. What we see in Ezra 6, verse 22, 
God uses unexpected people for the glory and redemption of his own people. Look at me in verse 22. Look with me in verse 22. And they kept the feast of the unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful. And he had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. If you just go back a few verses, we see in verse 14 in chapter 6, And the elders and the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edu. They finished the building by decree of God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. This is the common theme that has brought us from Ezra 1, the very first verse of Ezra 1, when God stirred up the heart of Cyrus all the way through the end of chapter 6. We see that God uses unexpected people to bring about his purposes. And this shouldn't shock us, right? Because God also used King David, a shepherd boy the youngest son of Jesse to bring about his redemptive purposes for his people. He also used Moses, a murderer and a fugitive who was also an orphan. He used Jacob, the deceiver, Joseph, who was a slave, Rahab, a prostitute, He even used Eve, the cursed. And he used Peter from Chile to bring about his redemptive purposes for his people. He used Jesus of Nazareth, born to a young woman out of wedlock in the back alleys of Podunk, Bethlehem to redeem the cosmos. What I want you to hear this morning is that God can use you to bring about his redemptive purposes for his people. He has used people in your life that maybe you think are worth nothing to bring about his purposes for his people. If he can use Pilate and Herod and Darius and Cyrus and Artaxerxes, we believe in a God who can use presidents and governors and teachers and activists and police officers. He can even use us to bring about his redemptive purposes for his people. God uses unexpected people in his story of redemption God also expands the aspects of the story in the story of redemption. Who here has heard of a genogram? Has anyone heard of a genogram? Great. For all you know, I made it up. So what a genogram is, it's, it's a device used in counseling. Um, you know, I took one class in counseling, and of course I became an expert after just one class. But a genogram is used, and it looks a lot like a family tree, except it's a lot more in-depth, because not only does it follow the flow of a family tree, but it also follows other things like habits. Do you know a lot of you probably have the same habits that your parents had? 
I know this is a shocker. It follows emotional relationships. Let's, let's be honest. Sometimes it's easier to like one child more than another. It also follows sin patterns. Generationally. It's, it's pretty eye-opening as a device used in counseling for us to be reflective enough to see these type, this, this type of flow from our families that shape who we are. You know, God uses the same type of stories throughout Scripture over and over and over again to remind His people who they are. The Exodus, we're talking about the Passover. The Exodus is a story that's used over and over and over. In the Exodus, God's people are found in Egypt. They were slaves. He came to save them. In Ezra, we find the people in Babylon as slaves. And he came to save them like he said he would. In the church, we find ourselves as slaves to our sin. And he came and he saved us like he promised he would. It's the same story. Except much like these genograms that expand like genealogies over time, the story of God's redemption continues to get bigger and bigger and bigger as we move through history. In Egypt, when the people were brought out of the land, do you know what the requirements were to partake of the Passover meal? You had to be circumcised. And you needed the blood of the lamb. In Ezra 6, to participate in the Passover, do you know what you needed? You needed to be circumcised, and you needed the blood of the lamb. But it's really interesting. Ezra adds something else to this in verse 21. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, circumcised people who were getting ready to slaughter the Passover lamb, and also by everyone who joined them and separated himself from the uncleanliness of the people in the land to worship the Lord God of, Egypt, of Israel. The purification of the people of the land were the people that they found in the land that separated themselves from the people of the land. And we remember the people of the land, right? Remember in Ezra 4, they were the ones that caused disruption in the temple building. They were the ones that the leaders of the people of Israel said, we have nothing to do with you and you have nothing to do with the God that we serve. These people that separated themselves from the people of the land are partaking of the Passover meal. They are hearing the story of how God redeemed them by the blood of the Lamb. Israel's story is becoming their story. God was gathering His people in a central location at the temple so that they might be a blessing to the world. In the New Testament, you don't need to be circumcised. And you don't have John and I slaughter a whole bunch of lambs once a year. Thank the Lord. In the New Testament, we have the fulfillment of those two things needed. 
Males, are no, males no longer receive the sign of circumcision, the sign of God's promised covenant. It's been replaced by baptism that everyone receives. In the New Testament, we no longer celebrate the Passover through the sacrifice of a single lamb because Jesus was the lamb of God, sacrificed once and for all for us. Because we have been covered with the blood of Jesus, we are the redeemed people of God. In the Old Testament, the movement was centripetal, right? Always about bringing people in. The exodus, it was local, it was particular, it was specific. The return from exile, it was local, specific, and particular. God was drawing his people to the temple so that he could make them holy. But in the New Testament, we see the, the opposite. We see a centrifugal force. We see God sending his people out. But yet, it's the same story. You need to be covered by the blood of the Lamb of God. And this is what we celebrate at this table. Christ shed his blood for us once and for all. If you come to him by faith, you are the redeemed people of God. We do not celebrate that we are enough. We celebrate that Jesus was enough. Yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, we've, at our house, the Olympics are just on. It doesn't matter what it is, it's, it's just on. But I think it was yesterday, one of the announcers, or the, one of the commentators was saying there was a team of the, of the U.S. that was a very faithful or faith-driven team, and they all had this necklace. And on this necklace, it was written, I am enough. That kind of, a faith of what? But then I looked at mantraband.com, Sure. And this is what they said the I am enough necklace means. A gentle reminder to accept and love yourself always. Forgive yourself because your mistakes don't define you. I am worthy. I am loved. I have enough. I do enough. I am enough. Let me tell you, that is not the story of Scripture. Our story is that Jesus was enough. Our story was, I am only worthy because Jesus was worthy. If you tell yourself the story that I am enough, I do enough, then you do not believe in Jesus. You believe in yourself. The blood of the lamb says the opposite of what that little necklace said. The blood of the lamb says, I need something outside of me to save me because I am not enough. Our sign, our mantra is the blood of Jesus. This is what we tell at this table. This is our story. This is what we rehearse, whether it be weekly or monthly or quarterly. This is the story that we continue to tell ourselves 
and that we continue to tell our children, you are not enough, but Jesus is enough. Israel's story in our story is the same story. God found us in our sin and he saved us. It is because of Jesus that God has passed over your sin. It is because of Jesus that you have received divine grace. You know, I've seen a meme, and I usually, I actually really like memes, but most of them are terrible. But I've seen this meme, and every time I see it, I I just love it. Because it's a meme, and it shows a doorpost with blood over the top of it. And it said, God did not look inside the house. All he looked for was the blood. Because the people inside the house were not worthy. It was the blood of the lamb that made them worthy. God uses unexpected people. God expands the same story. And God offers us joy for those who take part of this story. In C.S. Lewis' book, Surprised by Joy, he describes joy in, in a different way. He says that joy is the fulfillment of an inconsolable longing. Lewis speaks in this book of his own story, coming out of atheism to theism and ultimately to Christianity. And he said, it's not merely a happiness or an aesthetic joy, but what joy that the Christians offer is, is fulfillment. Two times in this passage, in verse 22, do we hear that the people celebrated with great joy. And if you look back through Ezra, it's said over six times that when the people worshipped, they worshipped with joy. In the story that we tell about Jesus, we tell a lot of truths. We talk about a lot of doctrine. We talk about life change. But you only find True fulfillment for your lives in Jesus. Lewis says in his books, When we are lost in the woods, the sight of a signpost is a great matter. He who sees it first cries, Look! And the whole party gathers round and stares. This is what we do at the Lord's table. Our genealogies, our stories, we've come from so many different parts of the world. We've had so many different visions for what life was going to be like, or what life should be like. We view the world differently, but when we come at the table, we view the world through the lens of Jesus, and he brings us fulfillment. And church, hear me, you will not find it anywhere else. If you believe in a different story, you won't ever find this joy. If you do not tell this story to your children, they're going to believe in a different story. Because our culture is telling them a different story. Our culture is telling them a story, you are enough. And that's not the story of Scripture. If you don't believe in the story, come to Jesus by faith, and his blood will wash you clean. 
Jesus is the story that unites us together. It's the story we should retell to ourselves and to our children. It's the story that can change the life of your coworker or your neighbor. And it's not just the story that they hear, it's a story that they can join in and make it their story. Because God is blessing the nations through his people. Jesus is the one that tells us where we've been. He also tells us where we're going and what we've experienced together. It's a story that we needed saving, and God saved us in Jesus. Amen. Let's pray.